This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I feel that wokeness, the moral derangement of the left, has reached some kind of tipping point and the vapors will dissipate on their own. But the craziness of Trumpistan is so provocative and so seemingly justifying of the craziness in Wokistan that they mutually create one another at this point. So if Trump runs in 2024 and if he wins or somebody who is just appealing to the Trumpist cult with the same politics wins, then I have no intuitions as to how long this thing lasts. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. There has been a lot going on in the world for the last week or two, but I would be amiss not to comment on the strange developments in the country uh, where I'm currently spending a little bit of time, namely the United Kingdom. I have a few observations about the ascent of Rishi Sunak to become Prime Minister of Britain and the near ascent of Boris Johnson, who looked for a few days as though he would somehow be able to storm back to office. A friend of mine said tonight that it's remarkable how unremarkable the ascent of Sunak to the prime ministership feels. Sunak, of course, is of Indian origin. And until very recently, it was extremely rare for democracies to be governed by members of ethnic minority groups. It remains somewhat rare, but the number of senior politicians from such groups and even the number of heads of governments from such groups has rapidly been rising over the course of the last decade. The fact that we don't think of this as huge news is progress. And even more important progress consists in the fact that right-wing parties, which are not the parties I would vote for, are able to attract significant support among ethnic minority voter groups and to have senior figureheads who are from those demographic groups because nothing would be worse than a dystopia, which is sometimes treated as a utopia of having a future politics cleaved cleanly into a group of white people on one side and people of color on the other side. The second striking thing about Rishi Sunak and the state of British politics more broadly is that a few years ago, British politics felt incredibly polarized and the figureheads of the main British political parties were each in their way quite extreme. Jeremy Corbyn as leader of a Labour Party and Boris Johnson as leader of a conservative party and as prime minister. Today, by contrast, we have Rishi Sunak, a prime minister who is in many ways quite a traditional conservative, uh, moderate on social issues, somebody with moderate center-right instincts on economic issues. And we have a 
pretty moderate leader of the Labour Party in Keir Starmer, somebody who has clearly distanced himself, albeit belatedly, from many of the statements and positions taken by Jeremy Corbyn. So there's actually been quite a remarkable revival of moderation in British politics. It may prove short-lived, but it is an interesting and important change that has not really been noted very much in the press. Now, the third set of things I want to say are about Boris Johnson and his remarkable ability to put himself back into contention for the prime ministership, even though in the end he was unable to get on the ballot of Tory members and to regain his office. But I think how close he came to that. At one point, bookmakers gave him about a 50% chance of winning, is instructive in three ways. First, populists, and even though Boris Johnson was never as extreme and never as dangerous as people like Donald Trump or Viktor Orban, he is by nature a populist, somebody who claims to speak for the whole people and has this atavistic rapport with his core supporters. Populists have an amazing staying power. They are often able to storm back to office even after being convicted for a crime, as Silver Berlusconi was at one point, even after having their closest collaborators accept suitcases with a lot of money on video, as was the case for Alberto Fujimori in Peru. The second point is that part of the strength and resilience of these leaders come when they have deft political positioning. One thing that people always underestimated about Boris Johnson was that he was center-right on cultural issues. He had been mayor of London, an incredibly multicultural city. He courted ethnic minority voters. He was clearly comfortable with a cosmopolitan Britain. And at the same time, he clearly opposed some very unpopular left-wing stances on culture, such as attempts to take down statues of Winston Churchill. At the same time, Boris Johnson was center-left on the economy in many ways, paying out generous subsidy schemes uh, during the COVID pandemic, promising to make big investments in improving uh, infrastructure and other things in the poorer regions of England, in the North, appealing to voters in this manner. And that mix of policy positions was always as important a reason for his appeal as his personality. It also helps to explain why this trust who deviated from his positions came to be so toxic so quickly. And finally, there is the reason why Boris Johnson did not win in the end, because stalwarts of a conservative party changed the rules for the leadership contest to require 100 MPs to nominate a candidate, and because Boris Johnson was unable to find those 100 candidates, because even people who were in certain respects on the right of a conservative party, like Kemi Badenoch, decided to put the head in for Rishi Sunak because they could not abide two more years of Johnson's irresponsibility 
in government. As Dan Ziblatt, a friend of his podcast, has argued in the past, when the threat to democracy is from the right, the behavior of right-wing parties is really key to the survival of democracy. Surprisingly, the Conservative Party has found both the institutional capacity and the will to save Britain from a comeback by an irresponsible politician like Boris Johnson. Now, this is all good news in some respects, but I fear that it is also bad news for American listeners. Because for the same reasons, Donald Trump is likely to have staying power, like so many other populists who are able to cleave the country into his passionate supporters and his even more passionate opponents. But I think the hope that the Republican Party may continue to have the institutional capacity or that it might find the will to stand in the way of Donald Trump, in the way that the conservatives stood in the way of Boris Johnson, seemed quite remote. My guest today is Sam Harris. Sam is a best-selling author who is the host of a Making Sense podcast, as well as the developer of a meditation app called Waking Up. We had a really long and detailed and interesting conversation about some of the main themes on which Sam has worked. In the first part, we discussed the case for atheism and really went into detail about whether or not to blame religion for many of the terrible things that have been done in its name. So I really tried to push Sam on the question of whether the world would have been a better place for the last 2,000 years if religion had not existed, or for that matter, whether America today is becoming better because of the rapid secularization the country is going through. In the second segment of the conversation, we try to understand the rise of the far right and the threat that Donald Trump poses to democracy, the rise of an illiberal left, which is undermining liberal norms in some of the mainstream institutions in the United States, and the way in which those two phenomena are or are not connected. And finally, as somebody who has never really tried meditation and is nervous about doing so, I got Sam to give me the case for why trying meditation is something that even people who are pretty skeptical of all kinds of spiritual enterprises should give a try. Sam Harris, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Asha. It's good to see you. It's great to speak to you. So you've worked on so many important things over the years, but I actually want to start by revisiting one of the topics that really made you prominent. You were one of the four horsemen of atheism. I want to do two things. One is that I want to just hear the intellectual case for atheism. I mean, afterwards, I have some political questions for you. But just what is the intellectual case for atheism and why should we care about that? Well, the epistemological case for it is pretty simple. It's the same as the case for not believing in Zeus or Poseidon or Isis or any of the other of thousands of dead gods that are interred in the graveyard we call mythology. Since this is a kind of a famous trope of atheism, the atheist just goes one god further and consigns the god of Abraham 
to the same fate. I mean, these are clearly inventions of people, and they don't purport to be, right? The God of Abraham is explicit in the Bible and the Quran that uh, the document you're now reading is the word of God. This is not of human manufacture. And it's just obvious that that can't be so. It's really a claim when you're dealing explicitly with Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, it's really a claim explicitly about books because these traditions are based on claims about books. They're based on revelation or what purports to be revelation. And yet you look at the books and there's just no way they're the product of omniscience. They betray their merely human origins on every page. And what they don't show, which would have been trivially easy for a god to put in there, is a single sentence that announces its supernatural provenance, right? I mean, just think of how easy it would be for an omniscient being to write a book or even a single page of text that proved that it could not be of human origin. The first thing you would do if you're trying to convince anyone of anything or even just be useful over the centuries, but rather than give us insights into mathematics and science and computation and you know everything else that we care about at the moment, medicine, it tells us how to sacrifice goats, right? And when precisely, and how to keep slaves. And I'm not saying there's no wisdom in those books. Of course there are, but there was wisdom in many other books in that period. So there's no monopoly on wisdom in the Bible at any of the stages of its completion. And so let's just be honest about the nature of the books. And the moment you are honest, you witness to your horror that we're living in a world that is shattered over competing claims about literature. The situation we're in is every bit as absurd as a world in which people would be seeking to pass laws infringing on the rights of their neighbors or to start wars or to commit terrorist atrocities based on rival interpretations of the plays of Shakespeare. We don't live in that world, but just imagine how absurd it would seem to live in that world, right? You got these plays and you got the, you got the Hamlet cult that's going against the Lear cult. And they're literally willing to die and let their children die over differences of opinion about those various texts. It would be insane, but the world we live in is every bit as insane as all that, right? And yet we've acclimated to it. We cease to notice it. It's no longer salient to most people except most atheists. So atheism is intellectually and politically relevant in the end because it is the only lens you can throw up over the present that reveals how insane and obscene, really, the, the, the wastage of human life and opportunity and attention is over these ridiculous claims about texts. I'm sure you'll get there, but what I'm not denying in all of that is that there are extraordinary experiences that are testified to in some of these books, right? And that the transformation of the human mind is possible and that you know, unconditional love is possible and self-transcendence is possible and, so, and certain people have extraordinary charisma and all, like, all of that is real as phenomenology and we should be interested in all that, but we should be investigating that and experiencing that and talking about it, most of all, in 21st century terms. So that's an excellent summary of the case for atheism. I wonder how far it goes, though, right? So that feels like a strong set of arguments to be skeptical about the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Quran, you know, various particular religious texts. It doesn't strike me as an argument for the absence of some divine force. So does the core of your atheism just say, 
you know, the main monotheistic religions are wrong, we have no reason to believe in those? Or do you think that by extension, the same argument can be made about any particular set of claims, and we should therefore not believe in any purposive higher force? No, it really is limited to the obviously false claims about books, especially the divine origin of certain books and the virgin birth of certain people, etc. But no, I think there's every reason to believe that the universe is stranger than we realize and may in fact be stranger than we can realize. And so if you're going to tell me we live in a universe where there are trillions upon trillions of nearly identical copies of ourselves having precisely this conversation or or something close to this conversation, um, that picture of a multiverse, I mean, that's as strange as anything you find in religion, and yet probably one third of physicists at the moment believe something like that. But they have reasons for believing something like that, you know, as unintuitive as it is. And if we're living in a simulation on some alien supercomputer, I mean, the, like the, the the world could be profoundly counterintuitive. And so, yeah, I'm not closing my accounts with every strange version of of ontology. There, it's just every specific claim has to be taken on its own merits, right? And if you're saying, well, the, here's a book that is perfect in every syllable and you know it could not possibly have been written by mere mortals that's a very easy claim to analyze and there's no book that survives contact with that claim again you can just take each of these claims as they come you know take the claims of l ron hubbard which mark the foundation of scientology right well like you know we have this guy's driver's license you know we know a lot about l ron hubbard and so the reason why scientology looks more like a cult and less like a religion it's not merely the number of subscribers, it's that it's all too human origins are well-documented. And Mormonism is right on the cusp of that invidious analysis. And But as you push back further into history, the scope for alleging miracles where we just don't have facts becomes a little bit wider, and that's what people have done. But it's just, and I'm not even closing the door to any possibility of what we might call a miracle, right? I mean, a miracle on one level would just be some aspect of natural law or natural phenomenon that we don't understand. I mean, the universe is whatever it is. No one thinks we are anywhere near fully understanding it, right? So yeah, things could be very strange, in fact, but it's just not strange in that way. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So, you know, I'm trying to play devil's advocate to some extent, or perhaps God's advocate, because I grew up as a non-religious person. My parents, my grandparents were not religious. And so I find it easy to agree with you on much of that. But when we're talking about miracles, you know, what about the possibility of a miracle that goes beyond what you're saying, right? So one understanding of miracle is simply, there's clearly a lot of laws of nature that we haven't understood. So there could be certain events that just befuddle us. And one way of expressing that is to say, well, it's a kind of miracle, right? You know, what about the possibility that there's some 
purposive divine force that intervenes in the affairs of the universe at certain points. And that actually does have a capability in some meaningful sense of that term to suspend laws of nature, right? To intervene in the ordinary course of things as a supernatural agent. Now, I have no particular reason to believe that, but it strikes me that it's also really hard to come up with a reason to disbelieve that. And so I guess I'm wondering whether you're agnostic about those kinds of claims or whether you think we can reject them in a more universal sense, not just as regards particular claims made in particular human texts, but even as regards possible such claims. Well, I would say there's no evidence for such claims. And if there were such a force, right, if there were some kind of divine mind that could intervene in our affairs whenever it liked, or he or she liked, well, then one thing you can know about this mind is that it's not moral in the sense that we would want to claim, right? It's certainly not compassionate. If the appropriate focus of compassion is human and animal suffering, it wasn't of much help when 500 million people were killed by smallpox in the 20th century, right? It, was, it wasn't much help during the Holocaust, right? So you have all these religious people thanking God for these invisible interventions. You find a parking space that just a second ago wasn't there, and you thank God for easing various transitions in your day, you know, or more seriously, you get a diagnosis of cancer, but you get this miraculous remission right? Your doctors thought you were doomed and you got better, right? Well, but think of all the people who didn't get better, right? And think of all the, the good work this God of yours has not done in the lives of others who are just as deserving or even more deserving of compassion than you were. I mean, just think of all the children who cannot be accused of having done anything wrong or annihilated casually moments after birth or, you know, in, in the first years of their lives, right? You know, so you need only one horror story like that, and of course there are millions, to disprove this notion that an all-seeing, omnibenevolent God is watching over us, right? So then if you're going to say, okay, well, but what if there's a divine mind that is intervening far more casually and capriciously and without rhyme or reason? Okay, well, what good is that to anyone? You know, it's practically a, an autistic God with a roulette wheel. I mean, what are we alleging here, right? Like, what are we praying to in that case? Ironically, then we're back to sort of a, a conception of Zeus or something like that, right? These very human gods with, you know, very human instincts and desires and jealousies and so on, right? Let me go to what I'm in some way more interested in, which is the political implications of religion. And I want to ask you, two related questions, one of which is sort of grand and more historical, and the second that I'll come to later is sort of applying that to the American context. So, you know, I have become quite convinced that there are certain basic aspects of human psychology which drive our behavior, that we, as Jonathan Haidt would say, groupish, that we tend to form groups very easily, often treat members of those groups with great compassion and great altruism, but they're also capable of treating anybody who's not a member of those groups with incredible cruelty and, and nastiness. And if that's a basic mechanism of humanity, then the way in which that has become activated so often through history, obviously, is religion, right? There's other mechanisms as well, but this is one of the really important ones, right? I'm a Christian, you're not. 
I don't owe any duties to you. I'm a Catholic, you're Protestant, I don't owe any duty to you. I'm a Shia, you're a Sunni, I don't owe any duty to you, and so on and so forth. Right? But if we think that what's going on here is actually a set of human capacities that are baked into how we operate, then it's not as clear to me as it might seem at first sight that an absence of religion would lessen human conflict or would lessen human suffering. Because with our infinite ability to invent lines, to distinguish my group from your group, we would simply be driven to give more importance to ethnic differences, more importance to ideological political differences, more importance to all kinds of other differences we might be able to emphasize or concoct. So I guess my question is, do you think that if people for the last 2000 years hadn't believed in these different religions, would we have had fewer conflicts or would we just have had different conflicts? Well, a simple way to answer that question is to just imagine what it would take to improve our religions. I mean, forget about getting rid of religion, just imagine modifying the Ten Commandments so as to produce a wiser, less divisive ideology, right? That would be trivially easy to do. You know, you just swap out the no graven image clause for something truly useful, like, you know, don't keep slaves, right? Don't own people and treat them like farm equipment. That would have closed the door theologically to slavery, whereas the door, as you know, was wide open for centuries because the Bible on balance supports slavery, certainly doesn't condemn it, and you know, even Jesus doesn't condemn it. So it's easy to see how we could improve the Bible or the Quran. The Quran could have been a document that just assiduously spelled out the political equality of men and women. But it doesn't do that, of course. It, it assiduously spells out the political inequality of men and women, right? And women, the world over, are paying the price for that. You know, in this very day, women in Iran are protesting, fighting, and in many cases dying to carve out some space of equality for themselves politically. So it's easy to see how we can improve these documents and the, the resulting faiths. So there's no argument against doing that, right, if we could. Um, and we, we have effectively done that just because we have, over the course of many centuries of, of smashing religion against secular ethics and scientific rationality, we have taught generations of people that being a true fundamentalist just isn't worth it, right? It's just not, it doesn't get you the life you actually want and are right to want. And so most people, even fundamentalists, frankly, in the West, have relaxed their hold on religious literalism. And where people don't do that, you have something fairly extraordinary in this day and age, which is you have something like the Taliban or you know the Islamic State, where People really have the courage of their convictions and say, you know, no, no, we're, we're going to live by the letter of this thing. We're going to keep sex slaves. We're going to cut people's heads off and et cetera, et cetera. And that's what you get. So I don't think we're condemned not to make progress in overcoming our native tribalism and xenophobia, because we've already made immense progress, even under the shadow of these divisive and tribal identities. So the identities could have been much better. The beliefs could have been much better. We could have had something like enlightenment-based secular rationality centuries before we did. And we only got it in direct zero-sum contest with a very intolerant and, and overweening church authority, right? I mean, scientists were literally dying trying to 
interrogate the nature of the world. The house arrest of Galileo is the, one of the final moments here where, you know, you've got a bunch of clerics who are glassy-eyed religious maniacs who won't look through his telescope, and you've got a terrified scientist pretending to believe as they do and basically disavowing his thesis. And that's where we left that, and we've made progress since then. So may I take your point that religion is a very powerful piece of software for us to enshrine our groupishness. There's certainly an argument that it allows strangers in groups larger than Dunbar's number of 150 to cohere rather readily in larger social organizations and then, you know, go to war against other groups. It's easy to see how there could have been a cultural evolution within which religion proved a very durable feature. If I really do know something important about you, whenever you pay lip service to the same God, that can be a literally a shibboleth. This is where we get the concept. You know, you prove your in-group status by making, you know, costly sacrifices in the same direction. Well, then that basis for trust is useful, but that's not the only conceivable version of that kind of trust. And now we obviously have secular, democratic, non-otherworldly versions of that. Yeah, so I certainly don't mean to be fatalistic in the sense of saying human beings are groupish and therefore there's always going to be the same amount of conflict in every age. We've clearly seen that there are decades and centuries with much more conflict and much bloodier confrontations and decades and centuries with much less. And so I think one of the big tasks of the present, and I talk about a lot of that in, in my last book, My Great Experiment, is to figure out the social and cultural and political institutions we need in order to keep that groupishness under wraps, particularly at a moment when our societies are so diverse. But to push you a little bit further on this point, I do think that in you know some of the work of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, including you, there is a sort of blaming religion for all of the conflicts in which religion was invoked. And in a sense, that seems fair and natural. I think that in many ways, those religious conflicts were the proximate cause of the 30 years war, of all of those kinds of things. But if I think about this, and it's a really large question that social scientists don't have a good way to answer, so we rarely ask them. But if I think about it with the basic tools of social science, which is counterfactual causation, right? I want to ask, okay, well, what would have happened realistically if those religions weren't around? If Christianity hadn't arisen, you know, around the time of year zero, because that's how we count, if the Quran hadn't been written a number of centuries later, and so on. And I actually find it really hard to answer that question, because on the one hand, one really powerful source of conflict would not have been in the world. On the other hand, as you're saying, one really powerful source of large group solidarity would not have been there, which might have increased the chance of much more small-scale endemic warfare, of much more conflict at the level of one village against the next in ways that might have made it even harder to sustain human civilization. And there may have come into being some alternative set of ideologies or set of political or social, cultural, linguistic, racial divisions, which would have taken the place of those religious conflicts. And it's really hard to know what those would have been like and how much conflict they would have caused. So I guess when I think about 
the last 2,000 years of human history, I think it's fair to say that religion was a proximate cause of an awful lot of suffering. And that's a very good reason to be skeptical of it. But I find it hard to have any real handle on whether the world really would have been better if those religions, Christianity and Islam in this context in particular, had not arisen. Yeah, well, I, I think it's okay to r- remain agnostic about that. I mean, counterfactuals are hard, obviously. But I think one could easily argue that had Christianity not won out and paganism had endured, you know, that might have been a better road toward religious tolerance for the, the next millennium, right? So, but whatever is the case there, even if we knew that during the childhood of our species, religion was absolutely essential for our survival. Let's take it right up into the 20th century. Let's say we just knew that nothing good was going to happen, nothing better could have happened through you know, World War II, but for our full embrace of our religious heritage. The question is what to do now. What's the role that religion is playing now? You know, how certain do we want a U.S. president to be that death is an illusion and that if you're a good Christian, you get everything you want after you die? When we have a U.S. president who says in the darkness of his closed eyes, he consulted his creator and formed an intuition about whether to go to war. Is that good news? And how does that confession change if he says he was talking to God through his hairdryer? He's talking to God through his hairdryer. He's obviously a dangerous lunatic, and we have to get him out of the White House, right? But if he's just doing it on the natch, well, then he's just a Christian, right? So we can grant that... There's some distance between what people profess to believe and what they really believe. But when people really, really believe these things, how consoled should we be? I mean, how much do you want your airline pilot to really believe in the power of prayer? Because if you really believe in the power of prayer, then that has consequences, actual or potential consequences. Imagine a pilot who really believes in the power of prayer, right? Who will fly into a thunderstorm knowing that it's certainly elevating the risk of catastrophe for himself and all his passengers. But no, no, he knows God's you know riding shotgun with him because he's just a true believer. Well, you know, in my view, that's a disaster. That's precisely the kind of pilot you don't want. So you can multiply those examples, obviously. And I think everywhere, what you want are people whose convictions scale with good reasons and good evidence and good arguments and intuitions that are tutored by intellectual honesty and honest collisions with the opinions and evidence of other people so that there's a a certain kind of humility and circumspection and discomfort with illogic and desire for consistency. And I mean, the whole toolkit we have that's been so hard won that is eroding in various places, not just religious places. And we've got this postmodern effort, you know, that's happening over in Wokistan that is making everything seem upside down. And to the degree that it's insane and divisive and intolerable, it is those things because it so much resembles a new religion. That's what's so awful about wokeness is its intellectual dishonesty and its willingness to sacrifice obviously innocent people as scapegoats, etc. So I just think that if we're going to be honest about what we value and how we can safeguard what we value, reason and curiosity and honesty are our primary tools there. And in addition to love, obviously, and love, but you don't need to believe anything irrational in order to recognize that you love other people 
and that your world and your your life gets better the more you love other people and the, and the more you have you know good reason to love them there are a lot of scholars who claim that the foundations of liberalism and democracy are ultimately religious that a lot of the beliefs that ground the american republic a lot of the beliefs which ground human rights actually are religious and they're a kind of secular version of Christianity, which is always trying to hide its true nature or its true origins. What do you make of that line of arguments? Can we ground a deep belief in these important political values without recourse, explicit or implicit to religion? Yeah, well, I think we obviously can. It's just, um, I think people draw the wrong lesson from the observation that the roots of much of what we value are religious, right? So if you go back far enough, I mean, it's true even today, but it gets more and more true as you push back into history. And you look at every good thing that human beings have done, it's true to say that virtually all of those good things, most of the time, were accomplished by people who believed in God. So what lesson should you draw from that? I would say there's no lesson to draw from that because there was simply no one else to do the job, right? So you could say that every bridge that was ever built was, you know, for the most part, built by people of faith. You know, every hospital, every, you know, for the longest time, every scientific experiment run was done by somebody who at least professed some belief in God. But the question is, are those beliefs actually intrinsic to the enterprise and, and essential to it? Or are they just adding friction to all the good things you could do if, if you let a belief in Zeus, if you got it off your hard drive, right? I mean, what opportunity costs would we be paying if we added more gods to the picture, right? No one's tempted to say, well, what we really need is we've got to bring back the gods of Mount Olympus because they were playing, some, doing some crucial work for us. And so you read Homer and you read Ovid and you read all these good old books. And clearly those could not have been written without some nominal, at least, belief in those gods. We got the very idea of democracy out of Athens and there's a lot of Zeus talk there, right? So let's bring back, it's just a waste of time, right? And it's indecent that anyone would think we would have that kind of time to waste on that project, right? Given all of our challenges. So yeah, I would just say that just as you don't actually need a belief that the Bible was divinely inspired to any good thing in science or engineering or anything else now in the, in the 21st century, you don't need it politically and you don't need it philosophically or in any other way even if you can trace the origin of certain ideas to religious books or religious communities, because that's going to be true in almost every case. Ironically, this feels like an inverse of the argument I was pushing on you a little bit, right? Which is to say that I actually find it very convincing as a response to say, well, look, of course, a lot of the great artists of the last 2000 years were Christian, because if you wanted to have the money to, you know, do good artworks, you had to be a Christian. And, you know, all the most talented artists were drawn to making churches and so on, because that's where you could really let your talents shine. It doesn't mean that we wouldn't have had great art if Christianity hadn't been there and we'd had some different sort sets of beliefs. But in a way, that's similar to the argument I was making about conflict, right? That if we hadn't had these particular lines of conflicts, we may have had different lines which people identified. We might have gotten different kinds of conflicts. But I want to move on to the more contemporary version of the political concern I have. So a lot of the pushback against atheism had a political context in which a very strong evangelical movement and George W. Bush 
we had a moment in which Christianity felt very, very politically powerful in the United States. And there was very good reason to be concerned, for example, about efforts to stop teaching evolution in schools or to teach the controversy between the supposed controversy between evolution and intelligent design and so on, right? And so I certainly believed at the time that the influence of Christianity in American politics was really negative, that it was dividing the country, that it was pushing it towards policies that we didn't like, that it was pushing towards a kind of anti-intellectualism, like the one which pretends that evolution and intelligent design are two equivalently well-founded theories. But we're now two decades on or 15 years on from those debates, and the political moment feels very different. And I've seen people make the argument, and I don't think there's any really conclusive work on whether this is true in political science yet, but there seems to be some real plausibility to it. But actually, the relatively rapid secularization of American society over the last 15 or 20 years has a lot to do with some of our problems today, that you see the people who have deaths of despair, who are addicted to painkillers, be less likely to be religious, because actually people who continue to have some real religious links, at least have some kind of community, somewhere to go on a Sunday, some people to connect with, and that's a really stabilizing social force. But actually, a lot of the sort of most raw energy behind Donald Trump and the MAGA movement often is not people who, but maybe people who claim to be religious, who claim to have some kind of Christian or evangelical belief, but not the people who are actually embedded in a real church community by and large. They are people who are more isolated and therefore more angry. And of course, as you alluded to, there are people like John McWhorter and others who argue that even wokeness is a kind of quasi-religion, which is filling a space which may be there because of the decline of traditional religion on the left side of a political spectrum as well. So I guess applying that like much larger, much more difficult to fathom set of questions about the actual causal influence of religion over the last 2,000 years to just the time period in the United States of the last 15 or 20 years you know, America is secularizing. In a certain kind of way, evangelical Christianity plays less important a role in our politics today than it did 15 or 20 years ago, for I realize that there's some obvious counterexamples to that, like the recent Supreme Court ruling on, on abortion. Are you still a sanguine that further retreat of religion would actually help to make our politics more harmonious and sane and so on? Or has it turned out that these beliefs, irrational as they might be, have actually helped to provide an important social kit and an important civilization to our politics, and that its absence is precisely what's driven the sort of deep cultural division of a country today. Well, we clearly have a lot of problems. I mean, I would not deny that. And some of those problems could be compounded, certainly in specific people or even in any given generation, by the loss of things to which people were attached, right? So if people are attached to a belief in Santa Claus, when you tell them there is no Santa Claus, they suffer. This is true of kids. You know, the kids don't tend to like to hear that Santa Claus is a lie their parents told them. So something is lost, but then the question is, is there really a Santa Claus-shaped hole in someone's life that's indelible, that needs to be filled with a Santa Claus-shaped object at some point in the future? Or can we grow up? Can we make progress 
that gives us greater capacities and greater understanding and a greater basis for love and compassion and self-transcendence and solidarity and community and everything else we want and a right to want. So community is is a very good thing. And people who don't have it, right, or people who have lost it are suffering. Certainly most of them are in various ways. And that's understandable. And that's a problem that requires a remedy. So yes, it could be that we're in this kind of valley between two high spots where we've kind of descended a relatively mediocre peak on this landscape in search of a higher one, but we've had to go downhill a bit in order to, to then you know climb higher on some other part of the landscape. I mean, so it's, it's not that progress is just monotonically pleasant where things just get better and better and better and better with every increment of change. I don't imagine that. You know, we could be paying some kind of price for secularizing and secularizing rapidly. That's true. And certainly any individual, again, could feel like he or she has paid a price for losing their faith in God. And faith in God really does do a lot of work for people who really have it, especially around the phenomenon of death and bereavement. When you're contemplating your own death or the death of someone you love, and you sincerely believe that death is an illusion, not only do you not lose anything of importance when you die or when someone close to you dies, that person gets everything they want and they get it for eternity, right? And you will be reunited with your child or your mother or whoever it is in a few short years, and you'll be on the right hand of Jesus, and there's just, there is no problem, right? This universe is just set up to reward and console you in the end right? That is, if you espouse the the right opinions while alive, in those crucial moments while alive, even on death row, even if you've, you know, murdered and and raped your way through life and, uh, you know, ordered a chicken dinner as your final meal, as long as you come to Jesus in those in those last moments, if that's, if that's your faith, I suppose this works for Islam as well, you're good. And um, whereas someone who doesn't, doesn't actually mouth that incantation at the end, but has lived a an impeccably moral life, that person will not be so lucky, right? So that's, I mean, we can talk about how perverse that moral worldview is in the end. I mean, I think I would add here that my big picture concern, and really the, the I think the proper lens through which to view all of this is that all we have in any moment in time is human conversation with which to orient ourselves collectively, right? I mean, we're faced with this circumstance of of having a truly open-ended, a hopefully open-ended challenge of cooperating in the face of uncertainty with now 8 billion strangers, for the most part. And the question is, how good could human life be, given that that's our situation? And what are the tools by which we can navigate that situation? And given that all we have is persuasion, you know, that's a word I know you like, or force. So on the cooperation side and the conversation side, it is really a theater of persuasion. And so what allows people to persuade each other and what is there to appeal to? It's patently obvious to me that you can't appeal to non-negotiable ancient dogmas for which there is no evidence and which are not universally subscribed. So really at bottom, there is nothing that a Christian and Muslim can agree about when push comes to shove, you know, when it comes to the question of the divinity of Jesus, say, which the Christians really do care about and the Muslims really do repudiate 
And that's a problem, right? So that's not the best situation. Those aren't the best parameters for a conversation that is going to engineer real open-ended solutions to an absolute blizzard of coordination problems that we have to solve in real time so as not to ruin everything. You know, So nature is going to be throwing up pandemics uh, and we may throw up some ourselves through you know, malfeasance in various labs or deliberately through terrorism. And we're going to have a host of other problems. And then the question is, how can we rationally and compassionately interact with each other so as to solve those problems? And the cast of mind that is certain about religion, I would argue, and requires you know no proof and is bent upon misconstruing you know every scintilla of pseudo proof as proof positive of its dogmas that is the cast of mind that brings us other irrational eruptions of hatred and division like something like qAnon right and we've got some tens of millions of people in american society right now who claim to believe that the world is being run by child raping cannibals now again we can wonder whether or not they really do believe these things because the claims are as preposterous as can be, but they're not really much more preposterous than the claims of religion. They're just modern tweaks on those claims. And it's those kinds of people, again, the tens of millions of them in our society, have been trained to think that way. The level of intellectual honesty that gets you QAnon, to my eye, is exactly the level that gets you evangelical Christianity and all of its Bible-thumping conviction. But in what sense have people been trained to adhere to QAnon? So religion, they've been trained to believe for 2,000 years through very sophisticated institutions, right? Through parochial schools and Sunday schools and youth groups and a broader culture, all of which imbues the idea that Christianity is a rational and true set of beliefs, right? So I buy the claim there that there's this huge machinery that keeps it going. But what seems to have happened, and obviously some people believe both in Christianity and QAnon, but what seems to have happened is that actually as the belief of these organized religions with somewhat stable theologies has declined, you know, you and I hoped that people would embrace science and rationality and evidence-based reasoning and the basic values of the Enlightenment and all of those things that you and I equally care about, right? But what seems to be happening is that suddenly it becomes a lot easier to get a whole bunch of people to believe in QAnon conspiracy theories. I would think that there's massive overlap between QAnon and evangelical Christianity. Correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if any polling exists on this topic, but I would bet these are not, for the most part, atheists. Sight unseen, I would bet a fair amount of money that atheism does not correlate with QAnon and evangelical Christianity does. So my sense, and again, I can't cite a particular poll, for I've looked at a bunch of polls and that's sort of the impression I got from them is that probably somebody who believes in QAnon is likely to be a Christian, for there's also a fair share of non-Christians, but I think the less likely to be a member of an organized church. So they're much less likely to actually go to church on Sunday, right? They're less likely to have real meaningful ties to a Christian community. Yeah. Well, so QAnon is more complicated, perhaps, than I've suggested by making that comparison, because it's a social and political phenomenon 
and it's obviously not otherworldly and eschatological like a religion like Christianity. So it's a Venn diagram, and these are kind of overlapping sets of concerns, but it's not the same set. I would just say that it's hard to be reasonable and rational. It doesn't come naturally to us. You mentioned Jonathan Haidt, right? I mean, one of the things he emphasizes in his work is just how irrational we tend to be even when we profess to be rational, right? So much of our reasoning on his account is a lawyerly post hoc act of self-persuasion that, you know, our gut intuitions are justified, but we got there based on our intuitions. You know, let's say the moral intuition that certain things are disgusting or, you know, worth condemning. And then we don't really reason like moral philosophers. We reason like lawyers and, and, and publicists. Now, Jonathan and I don't totally agree about that. And more important, I mean, the place where we, I think we diverge more is I think any one of us or any large, you know, or, or individuals by the millions can make a fair amount of progress. I mean, this is what education is. Right? I mean, what does it mean to actually be educated? And what, what does it mean to live a an examined life beyond, you know, four years of college? You know, does education, does moral education and intellectual growth stop at, you know, your senior year in college? Or does it, you know, push into graduate school and stop there? Or if we're lucky, do we each get like a, you know, a 60-year or 70-year postdoc in becoming a mensch? right? And I think we do. And there are ways to do that. And, you know, intellectual honesty and, you know, a few other, you know, crucial pieces of software are hard won. It takes a wise culture to intrude into your life and into your rampant wishful thinking. And it takes a certain tolerance for the discomfort of those collisions to actually make progress and to grow. But surely there's a difference between two different questions, right? One of which is, is it part of the most meaningful life to live an examined life? And does that require you to interrogate these beliefs that are passed down from grandma? And I think both you and I, and probably a lot of listeners to this podcast, are committed to that enterprise, right? That's why we're the sorts of people, you and I, who make our living through thinking and talking and writing about the world. That's why the people who are listening to us right now are taking a long amount of time out of a day to think about these big questions, right? But not everybody has that preference, right? Some people, that's just not what they see as the meaning of a life, and that's just not what they care about. But that's one kind of question, right? Another question is, well, if everybody lived an examined life like that, or if everybody tried to, or simply if uh, those ideas were no longer effectively passed down from grandma to grandchild, would the world become a better place? And to go back a couple of beats, what you were saying is, hey, look, you know, perhaps it's true that when you look at this political moment in the United States and many other countries around the world, there seems to be a kind of argument that there's some pain from the loss of religion, that secularization seems to be leading perhaps to a greater availability of people who can believe in QAnon, who can believe in the great positive impact of people like Donald Trump, who can substitute older religious beliefs with a faith and some kind of woke ideology, right? But eventually that'll go away, right? We're in a kind of bad part of a U-shaped curve, right? But once sort of everybody is going to rid themselves of these beliefs, what if that's not the case, right? What if the people who are actually capable and interested in the examined life as as we talked about it, 
are really small in number. And when you untether people from those traditional beliefs, which have many downsides, but also some upsides in filling empty space and coming with certain moral precepts, actually, we're going to get more and more and more people being willing to believe QAnon and all kinds of other ideologies. And we might shift incredibly rapidly from one ideology to another. We might end up believing some ideologies that are much more hateful than traditional religions. And so it doesn't turn out that we're at the bottom of a U-shaped curve. It might turn out that we're in the middle of uh, a line that just you know, points down. So I guess why should we have this faith that these phenomena we're seeing at the moment are this temporary phenomenon that's going to get better rather than that they are a harbinger of what will happen in a pretty atomized society like the United States when, as seems likely given recent trends, religion comes to play an even smaller role here than it does at the moment. Well, the question seems to presuppose that we have a choice, right? That we can decide to pull the brakes on secularization or atheism and preserve these ancient beliefs in good standing among all the people who are apparently losing them. Well, not necessarily. As somebody who's not religious myself and who's very sympathetic to enterprise, I'm just trying to understand how much we blame religion for the bad things in the past and how much hope or fear should we have for that decline? That's an important question, whether or not you think that there's some meaningful way to affect it. I certainly am not about to say we should somehow try and you know, make everybody believe in an ideology or in a set of theological views that I myself don't believe in, that I think it's unlikely that I'm going to come end up in that position. But I do want to know, should I be hopeful for more secularization in the United States? Or should I actually feel quite uneasy about it because there might have these really bad political consequences. I think we should all be increasingly allergic to dogmatism, especially when the dogmas are obviously leading to needless human suffering and division. Again, it's useful to look at specific religious ideas or any ideas, political ideas, and then ask the question, well, if we had a choice, would we want to reinvent this crazy idea because it's so useful, right? So take your pick, you know, homosexuality is immoral, right? That comes to us courtesy of religion. You know, maybe it has older roots still, but it's certainly been enshrined in various religions. Uh, how useful is it? How good is our world? How improved is it socially and ethically that millions and millions of people insist that this dogma is true without any, I mean, it is the very essence of a dogma. They don't have a real justification for it. It's just, it's what they think is God has insisted is true. And if God had insisted otherwise, presumably they would believe that. You know, you could imagine, you know, it had uh, you know, the ancient Greeks gotten their hands on the Bible at the crucial moment, they might have relaxed some of that homophobia. But certainly, you know, gay people through the generations would have lived in a different world had that been the case, right? You wouldn't have had Oscar Wilde thrown in prison for being gay. And I think we could do that wisely. And we're right to want to do that now. And we've been doing that, obviously, politically over time. The, th the problem is we're doing it with one hand tied behind our back because even the people who are doing it quite heroically, for the most part, are still attached to these religious myths and these religious books and these religious identities. You know, our mutual friend, Andrew Sullivan, right, who's done as much as anyone 
and perhaps more than anyone in American society to get us into the end zone where we now have gay marriage being the law of the land, right? I mean, he almost did that single-handedly to my eye, but he's a believing Catholic. And, you know, he and I have debated these issues and Andrew is fantastic. He's brilliant. But anyone who is forced to be on the other side of this debate from me on this topic loses 30 IQ points just based on their religious attachment, right? I mean, they're, the ballast they're carrying just can't get up the hill. So, yeah, it would be better had God not said that homosexuality was a sin in the various ways he said it in both the Old and New Testament. And there are a hundred of very important examples like that where we could make our world a better place and edit these books if we could edit them. Again, which most certainly modern, cosmopolitan, well-educated religious people do by their disregard of those passages, right? People effectively edit the books by just deciding not to pay attention to the parts they don't like. But I'm just saying we could be more intellectually honest than that and recognize that all we've got is human conversation. And the question is, do we want a 21st century conversation where we avail ourselves of all the useful concepts and ideas insofar as they are useful? You know, we can take what we like from Shakespeare and what we like from Pericles and what we like from St. Paul and what we like from Jesus and what we like from the Quran and consider it a bequest from prior generations of merely human, but still, you know, fairly incandescent wisdom, which we can improve upon, hopefully, as we push into the unknown future. Thank you so much. I'm going to move on from religion and try and understand how you think about this cultural moment. You know, I'm struck thinking about the about 15 years that I've now spent in the United States, how much the basic intellectual layer of the land has transformed. And it seems to me that the two fundamental changes have been the transformation of the American right from the Republican Party of George W. Bush, which, as we've been invoking, was not to be celebrated in every respect, which had many flaws within it, but to the Republican Party of somebody like Donald Trump, which I do think is just a fundamentally bigger threat to American democracy and to decency. And then on the other hand, the sort of strange transformation of the left in which this sort of single-minded focus on identity and the marginalization of ethnic, religious, racial, sexual, gender groups has taken center place in a way that wasn't the case 15 years ago and has sometimes, not always, but sometimes gone hand in hand with a real embrace and tolerance for pretty liberal ideas. So how worried are you about each of these forces, the confluence of these forces, and is this an intellectual moment that's going to pass, or is this setting up the battle lines for the politics of the next 25, 50 years? You know, I'm not really in the game of making predictions across any time horizon of that sort. I mean, I, I think the one prediction I feel like I could make is that if Trump or anyone sufficiently Trumpist runs in 2024 for the presidency, the woke problem doesn't go away anytime soon. I think really, you know, if we had a normal Republican candidate for 2024, I feel that wokeness, you know, the moral derangement of the left has reached some kind of tipping point and the vapors will dissipate. 
you know, on their own. But the craziness of Trumpistan is so provocative and so seemingly justifying of the craziness in Wokistan that they mutually create one another at this point. So if Trump runs in 2024 and if he wins or somebody who is just appealing to the Trumpist cult with the same politics wins, then I have no intuitions as to how long this thing lasts. I agree with you, but this doesn't seem to go both ways, right? So certainly I think one of the reasons why quote-unquote woke ideas became so hegemonic, not just in the American left, but in some mainstream institutions in the second half of the 2010s, was that when Trump was in office, it both seemed to justify the most extreme claims, and it made it very toxic to argue against any left-wing position because you would be seen as running interference for Trump. And conversely, I think one of the reasons why it's so hard to beat Donald Trump, why somebody who's not, in fact, very popular in the breadth of the American population can nevertheless come close to winning re-election in 2020 and might come close or might, in fact, succeed in winning in 2024, is that so many Americans look at what's happened on the left and what looks at what the kind of abuses that happen in some mainstream institutions and say, well, I don't trust these guys. I may as well hold my nose and vote for Trump. So there does seem to be a kind of yin and yang effect here. Yeah, I agree. And it worries me. I don't know what the variables are that will determine whether Trump runs and whether he wins. I don't know who the Democrats will or should run against him. It just seems obvious to me that it can't be Biden and it can't be Harris. So the president and the vice president, in my mind, are unelectable. So who runs? I don't know. But if the Democratic Party can't recognize that, you know, and just has to run Biden or has to run Harris, I think we've got a real problem. And if they run somebody else and that person doubles down on identity politics, I think we have a real problem. If we could get normal, you know, politically normal, they're totally uninspiring left and right. I think many things improve for us. Whatever other challenges await us, we could be on the cusp of World War III and, and still, I think things get things get better if we could just find a way of turning those two knobs on the left and the right. Why is that so hard? When I look at opinion polls on particular issues, most Americans are pretty reasonable. Even on really contested questions like abortion, most Americans broadly favor a set of laws which most European countries have on the books, Germany, France, Italy, Spain, Sweden, Denmark, in various forms have on the books, uh, but which no American political party at this point actually institutionally stands for. And, you know, I just picked that because that's one of the most controversial and one of the most seemingly polarized issues. And actually, it turns out that there is a majority in the United States that favors those laws, which broadly say that you should have free access to abortion in the first trimester and some significant restrictions after that, though obviously with exceptions in cases of serious threat to the life of a mother and so on. Why is it that on issue after issue after issue, what average Americans believe is actually pretty reasonable, and yet political parties don't seem to cater for that? They don't seem to be able to set themselves up in such a way as to win a crushing majority and then perhaps force the other political party to follow suit and moderate as well. Mm. Well, again, this is a topic I think you know much more about than I do, but I would guess that it has something to do with our two-party system and our primary system and just the actual mechanics by which we elect people. 
I would also say that it probably has something to do with the religiosity of America. You know, the fact that the the left has, for as long as we've been alive, you know, for as long as there's been a country, has been in opposition to some version of theocracy. And that morphed under Trump, and we have the really grotesque spectacle of, you know, evangelical Christians joining a obviously unchristian personality cult so as to ram through their theocratic agenda. It's not quite as cynical and instrumental as all that. I really do think there's a love for Trump that is sincere, not just using him as a battering ram. I think a lot of these believing Christians really are part of the personality cult. I mean, they really do admire him deeply. And that's pretty inscrutable, given that he, in his every pore, represents the the nullification of Christian values, or at least standard Christian values, right? It's complex, but it is cultic. To call it cultic is to say that it's unreasoning and not amenable to reason, and that you know persuasion fails. And you got people who are just not open to argument and evidence, and there's just nothing that could prove as a reductio ad absurdum of their beliefs. You know, even when it is in fact a reductio, and they're in conflict with themselves, and they just refuse to acknowledge it, right? And so they they've kicked themselves loose of the earth. And there's no talking to them, right? So then the question is what to do when you get a sufficient number of people like that shrieking on the sidewalks of your society. And that's the political problem we've got. I have one thought here and a question. The thought going back a couple of beats is that it's really striking that when you take some of the rhetoric of the far left on the topic of race seriously, they talk about the historical effects of racism and they talk about structural racism. And I think when you take that seriously, it should actually allow them to see that the biggest problem is not ongoing forms of active discrimination, right? So one way of squaring the striking data about the success of Nigerian Americans and Kenyan Americans and many other recent immigrants from Africa and the continuing challenges for many groups of African Americans, where there is also a significant black middle class. Most black Americans now are middle class in this country and are actually doing pretty well. But one way of explaining that distinction is precisely to say, look, ongoing discrimination exists, but is relatively minor compared to the problem of the long-term effects that it has when for centuries you were enslaved and excluded from society and all those kinds of things. So, you know, I'm always struck by the fact that this is an argument that actually should be a left-wing argument. It's an argument about the enduring impact of the worst chapters of American history and the way that they're continuing to shape the present. I mean, that's actually very, very convincing. But somehow that is not how people take it. And so instead we get a much less intellectually rigorous account of the nature of a problem that can then easily result in people thinking that if only we let Robin D'Angelo loose on every boardroom in America, and if only we follow the kind of policy prescriptions of an Ibram X. Kendi, that would solve the problem, which even on sort of the grounds of a more sophisticated account of what the actual problem is, should obviously be a non-starter. But let me push you on just something where I'm unclear about where you stand, because you've said two things that intimate a slightly different position, one in response to the last question, one a little bit earlier in the conversation. So on the one hand, you're saying that 
you know, there are certain positions that you cannot take in polite society without a fear of cancellation. And that there's very few people who have built the kind of following and the kind of business where they can dare to do so, right? And that you're one of the few who have. On the other hand, it sounded as though you were saying a little while ago that, you know, if only Trump and sort of one of his followers doesn't win again in 2024, if only the sort of threat from the anti-democratic right would subside a little bit, it feels like we're at a turning point where people are willing to reject some of the sort of more out there ideas that have somehow been able to capture mainstream institutions in the last five or seven years. That feels like you're being more optimistic in one moment than the other. So how optimistic or pessimistic should we be? I don't know how hopeful that prediction is. I mean, it it does feel somehow contaminated by hope. Uh, And I don't know how uh, influenced it is by my just having paid so much attention to this issue and gotten so tired of it that it's just, I I just feel like, oh, there's no way this, this mania is going to continue for that much longer. But I just, I do feel like more and more people behind closed doors have broken the spell. Problem is, on the left, crucial asymmetries here to notice. They make it difficult to talk about you know, our politics, uh, certainly in, in, in short form and in anything like sound bites in a rational way. But I mean, what's wrong with the far right is so obvious that it it almost requires no discussion. I mean, like, what's wrong with being a neo-Nazi? What's wrong with being a true xenophobe? It's not ethically interesting or intellectually interesting to try to parse that. There's not really nothing to parse. And that's why I spend very little time thinking about it. Although, you know, I am worried about the far right and I'm worried about its possibility of far right violence. And I'm worried about the weird variants in Trumpistan that are, you know, not quite necessarily far right in all the usual ways, but they're profoundly undemocratic and they're profoundly disordered by bad ideas. But the far left and its influence on the rest of culture and its influence on our core institutions, you know, is far harder to understand. It's far more confusing to well-educated and well-intentioned people. Like, what's wrong with Black Lives Matter? I, I said something, you know, in passing that seemed to disparage Black Lives Matter what are you insane? I mean, how can there be anything wrong with Black Lives Matter? Don't Black Lives Matter, Sam? What you you racist bastard? It requires a conversation to get many ordinary liberals, you know, who have day jobs and don't spend, you know, all their time in the weeds of Twitter, you know, reading Thomas Chatterton Williams and others who have been so eloquent on this topic. What could be wrong with Black Lives Matter? You're going to default to thinking. That is a perfect articulation of the political needs of the moment. And it was obvious when you watched the murder of George Floyd that we had witnessed a racist lynching. You know, I saw it with my own eyes. What more is there to say about that? And the inclination to say any more about that betrays some unwholesome motive, if not frank racism on your part, or a racist disregard of the problem of racism and the suffering of born of inequality in our society, right? So it's harder to talk about, and yet it is no less dishonest. Ibram X. Kendi is no less dishonest than, you know, some analogous lunatic on the right. I mean, I just think he is poisonously dishonest, and he won't debate anyone who could mop the floor with him and reveal his dishonesty, right? He won't talk to Glenn Lowry or John McWhorter or Coleman Hughes or Thomas Chatterton Williams or any of these guys 
who have his number, right? And he's built a temple of white guilt for himself, and there are other priests in, in this temple. And it's a good gig, and it works at the Aspen Ideas Festival, right? And But what is really happening is we have our core institutions, from the New York Times to Harvard to our scientific journals to Hollywood to you know, media generally that's not right-wing, all of it being vitiated by public displays of dishonesty and masochism and frank stupidity that should be intolerable to all of us. And I think it is growing intolerable. And if we could just get Trump out of the picture, I think people on the left could begin to be publicly honest about it. Right, because privately they're being honest about it. I'm not encountering the same kind of confusion from people who are still terrified to say anything in public, but in private they see the world as I do, just to take one claim that sort of cuts through the the morass here. You said that there's not a lot of active racism keeping qualified black people out of good jobs and educational opportunities and all the rest. I mean, you said something like that. You can go further than that. You can say that At the same level of qualification, it is a positive advantage to be Black at this point in almost any part of society that would be truly desirable to a qualified candidate, whether it's you're looking for an educational opportunity, or you want to work in media, or you want to work in tech or in a Fortune 500 company. Being a Black applicant or being a, a person of color more generally, at the same level of qualification... America is your oyster at this moment. This is just a fact. You talk to anyone at any of these companies, you talk to anyone in an Ivy League institution in admissions, you talk to any nonprofit, they are desperate to hire qualified people of color. And if you're white or you're Asian, you are at a positive disadvantage, generally speaking. In medical schools, I mean, it's just, it is a fact. And basically everyone knows it. Right. And so what's happening on the left is you have a generation of activists determined to lie about all of that, determined to say that not only is that not true, the opposite is true, and racism is the cause. Right. The reason why there are not more black cardiologists in your local hospital is because of racism. Right. The reason why there's not 13% of everyone everywhere in good places in our society is racism today. And it's just not true. The opposite is true. You just look at admissions criteria for colleges are, um, you know, this problem in microcosm. It is just a fact that Harvard has to have a racist policy against Asians now in order to meet its affirmative action goals, right? And this is something that I think is going to reach the Supreme Court in short order. So it's, it's the lying about all of that that is so divisive. And the gaslighting about all of that. Again, I don't want to be read as somebody who's not concerned about and sympathetic to the very real disparities in our society. I mean, I want these disparities to be remediated in some way. And the question is how to do that. But finding racists where no racists exist, you know, rolling into the board of a company that is desperate to hire qualified people of color and feels exactly as you and I do about the divisions in our society, rolling in there as Robin D'Angelo and calling everyone racist and taking them to task for their white privilege. It is a symptom of a moral panic. It is leading to cultic behavior 
that is mirroring the cultic behavior of the right and the personality cult of Trump. And it's driving everyone crazy. I have many follow-up questions I would love to ask you, but I've taken a lot of your time and I want to make sure to end on a topic that I'm perhaps the least comfortable with in this entire conversation. And that's meditation. You are a great evangelist of meditation. You talk powerfully about its effects for some of the same reasons that make me skeptical of religion. I'm also skeptical of meditation, which is to say I didn't grow up with it. I'm not the sort of person to whom holiness speaks. You know, I don't like the atmosphere of church where you're supposed to sit still and be quiet and have a facial expression which indicates that you're in the spirit, in the presence of some kind of important thing. So it's just, it's not my vibe. And all of those things make me reluctant about giving meditation a try. I've never properly tried to meditate. Why am I wrong about this? Why should I go and download your app or download some other kind of app or go to some kind of meeting or retreat and actually try to engage in this practice? Mm. You know, generally speaking, there are two routes into taking meditation seriously or becoming sufficiently interested in it that you would um, pay attention to it and look into it and begin practicing it. One is just curiosity. It's just wanting to know more about what it's like to be you, wanting to know what more about your mind, wanting to discover what there may be to discover if you could only pay closer attention to your experience. And meditation is the method by which you would pay more attention to your experience. I think the more common path, and it's not antithetical to that, I mean, you can have both motives, but the, the more common motive is just to have become sensitized to your psychological suffering and to find certain types of suffering you know, less and less tolerable and to become interested in the mechanics of all that. Like, well, just why is it that you can't be your best self in every moment? You got what you wanted. You worked so hard to get this thing, and now you have it. And the half-life of your gratification is about 15 minutes and now you're unhappy again, right? Or you're wanting something else, or you're otherwise conflicted. Each of us goes through our day knowing what it's like to be really happy. I mean, not everyone has had this experience. I mean, there are people who have, are unlucky, you know, genetically and just circumstantially, and they don't have the free attention to even think about happiness, really. They've got too many problems. They're caught in a civil war, or they're too poor, or they're too unhealthy, or whatever it is. But most of us in the course of our lives, you know, at some point in childhood and then at some points thereafter, have seen the clouds break. We know what it's like to have a ray of sunshine. We know what joy is like. We know what real ease of being is like. And the question is, why is that not instantaneously available to us? And just some way of being with the present moment, whatever is arising in it, that allows you to feel more and more of that? Do you actually need good reasons to be happy? Or is it possible to be happy before anything happens, before anything changes, just in the very midst of even a struggle? And, you know, meditation isn't the only tool by which to address problems of this sort. Conceptual reframing of experience is, is also very powerful. I mean, you can learn to think about your experience differently. You can tell yourself a different story about what you know, various experiences mean, and stories have a lot of power. 
But at a layer beneath that, it's possible to notice that you're spending virtually every waking moment lost in thought. You know, you're having a conversation with yourself that sounds like white noise, and it just feels like yourself. You wake up from, you know, very likely a dream, which you dimly remember in the morning, and then you're kind of chased out of bed by your thoughts, and you think, 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 think throughout the day. And the structure of this thinking is somewhat paradoxical. In many cases, you're literally talking to someone who isn't there. I mean, you're telling yourself things you already know. You're replaying conversations that happened or almost happened or may yet happen. And you're only kind of dimly aware of your present moment experience through this cacophony of of discursive thought. And you're tending not to notice any of that. And all of that feels like me as the subject and center of my experience. And viewed from that side, meditation is actually not a tool or a practice or anything you're adding to your life. Once you discover how to do it, meditation is nothing more than ceasing to do something you're doing helplessly now. And it's ceasing to be distracted by thought. It's ceasing to be identified with each passing thought. And it's the ability to notice thought itself as an appearance in consciousness. So you've got sights and sounds and sensations and emotions and you have thoughts, and they're all appearing spontaneously in this wide open space of conscious awareness. And when you can step back and just notice thoughts as thoughts, and notice what the mind is like prior to their arising, and in the very midst of their arising, but not when it's you know trimmed down to being identified with each next one, the mind becomes a very different place. It's much more expansive, and you begin to notice that there's a freedom even in the midst of struggle, right? There's a freedom even in the midst of stress that can become more and more palpable. And you can sort of solve your basic problem of how can I be in the world in a way that is truly fulfilling without actually changing the world. I'm not saying that, you know, there aren't projects worth pursuing. I mean, we spent this whole conversation talking about immense social projects that we both desperately want to pursue. And there's no question that life can get better in all kinds of material and social ways. But there's a psychological layer to this, which is productive of so much else that ails us, right? That is really solved by recognizing that virtually all our suffering is the product of thought and identification with thought. And it's certainly any suffering beyond immediate sensory pain in the present moment, any suffering born of past and future, your regrets about the past and your fears about the future, that the mechanism by which that is, you know, doled out to you in the present is thinking without knowing that you're thinking, right? And meditation is nothing other than being able to wake up from that dream. Then you have another degree of freedom. Then you can decide, okay, well, is it worth being angry about this thing? that I was just helplessly angry about a moment ago. Sam Harris, thank you so much for this mammoth conversation and podcast. Yeah, thank you, Yasha. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like them, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod 
at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.